0: I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, which we've been studying together for the last two years. We're coming down to the end of the book. We started it in 2017. I think we're going to end it in 2020. I think we're going to get there. We're starting today in verse 15. We're following Jesus through the Gospel of Matthew. That's our series And we've reached that crucial Holy Passion Week where everything in the book comes to a head. Jesus has come to Jerusalem, locked horns with and denounced the religious leaders, and has predicted the destruction of the city and the temple. Their house will be left desolate. And in chapters 24 and 25, Jesus is teaching about that coming judgment of Israel and about His own return. So right now, we're learning together about what is often called the end times, or eschatology. And as I said last week, that can be both exciting and confusing. It's exciting because this is Jesus' own teaching about Jesus' own return. And that's so incredibly important. Amen? But it's also confusing. Because it can be very complex and complicated and Christians have often disagreed about the details. Faithful, Bible-believing Christians are all agreed that Jesus is coming back. That Jesus is really coming back personally. The same Jesus who left in the same resurrected body and that His return will change everything. Christians agree on that. But faithful, Bible-believing Christians have also not always agreed on all of the details of how and especially when that will happen. And there are actually many different views out there with different positions, different opinions, different ways of putting everything together. And I've been trying to study a bunch of them. And I I have respect for those who hold all of the different positions. I have the greatest respect. For those who taught me to love and read and believe and trust my Bible, and yet have a different position on these things than I have come to personally myself. There's lots of room for disagreement and for helping each other to see what each other sees and to sharpen one another. So let me ask you at the get go this morning have I lost you already? If you're new with us this morning, I'm sorry, this is a funny Sunday for you to just jump into the middle of, okay? You might want to go back and listen to last week's message. Have I lost you already? I may have already confused you last week in my teaching. You're going, but the, but, the, but uh, huh? You may already disagree with my interpretation, and that's okay. Because if I haven't lost you yet, I'll probably lose you today. There are a lot of details, and it can get confusing really fast. And every view, every position on this has its strengths and it has its weaknesses. It's hard to keep all these things straight. I confess this morning, I may not have all this right. I'm doing my very best, but I come in a spirit of deep humility. I have total confidence in Jesus' words, but that doesn't mean that I understand them all. When we come to passages like this one, we need to put on our thinking caps and we need to have patience with one another. Last week I said that there would be two overarching principles that guide our study of Matthew 24 and 25. Do you remember what they are? One is that we will focus on application. Jesus is always focused on our hearts, is he not? Whenever Jesus teaches on eschatology, he means for it to change our hearts and to direct our lives. This is not just information about what will happen in Jerusalem in the first century and what will happen when Jesus comes back. This is the information that we need to know about those things so that we live the way our king wants us to live while we wait for the consummation of his kingdom. So last week, we learned that while we wait for the king's return, we are not to be fooled, we're not to be scared, and we're not to let our hearts grow cold. Do you remember that? How'd you do with that this last week? Did you let yourself be swayed by false teaching and start to swerve? Did you get alarmed by world events and start to get alarmed? Did you allow yourself to grow indifferent to spiritual things and get cold? Or did you stay close to Jesus and grow in your love for Him? Did you boldly share the gospel of the kingdom while you wait for the King? See, here's how we'll know if we've really received this teaching in Matthew 24 and 25 if we live differently because we've studied it. Because if we just keep on doing the same old, same old, we are wasting our time studying eschatology. It's meant to change us. The second key thing we're going to do as we study Matthew 24 and 25 is to keep your eye on the ball. How many times have I said that in the Gospel of Matthew? Keep your eye on the ball. Matthew is a theological biography of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the key question that should always be in the back of our minds as we study Matthew is, what? Who is Jesus, right? Because Matthew is keen to show us who Jesus is. It's the number one thing he keeps saying. Who is Jesus in this passage? So here is, the, here is my title for today's message, and it goes along with that second principle. The coming of the Son of Man. Now those words, the coming of the Son of Man, occur in verse 27. If you look at it, you'll see them. The coming of the Son of Man. And similar words, coming and Son of Man, show up in verse 30. In Greek, the coming of the Son of the Man is "he parousia. Have you ever heard of the parousia? To talk about the coming of the Lord? That's this word. "he parousia tu huiou tu anthropou. The coming of the Son of Man. Who is this Son of Man? Who is that? That's Jesus, yeah. We've seen again and again as we've studied the Gospel of Matthew that Son of Man is Jesus' favorite name for himself. I think for a lot of reasons. One is because it gets at his humanity. But, it, but if you study the background of that term in the Old Testament, it also is foreshadows and points at his deity. And he's both, right? And also because of all that Old Testament back, background that comes into it. He loves Son of Man. In fact, don't take my word for it. Do a search This afternoon on your Bible app, search Son of Man in your Bible and see how Jesus loves to use this self-designation. Jesus used it when he asked Peter and the disciples that mega question in chapter 16, who do people say the Son of Man is? And then he said, who do you say I am? And what was the right answer? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus has used that phrase again and again to talk about Himself in relation to the end times. In chapter 13, Jesus said that the Son of Man would send out His angels to weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. In chapter 16, He said the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels and then He will reward each person according to what He has done. In chapter 19, He said, at the renewal of all things. What a phrase. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, His disciples will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so now in chapters 24 and 25, Jesus is teaching more about that coming of the Son of Man. And that's Him. What His coming will be like, and how to think about it, and how to prepare for it. And what good news it is. What good news it is. The coming of the Son of Man is good news for you and me if we are followers of Jesus Christ. Amen? This morning I have four points of. Wait a second. Amen? Is it good news? Amen. This morning I have four points of good news to apply to our lives because the Son of Man is coming. But first, before the Son of Man comes, we have to complete the birth pains. Do you remember the birth pains last week from verses 4 through 14? Jesus is describing these difficult things that have to happen before his return. He likened them to labor pains. Do labor pains hurt moms? Uh huh. Now I got an amen. Birth pains, labor pains tell you that something big is coming, something joyful. It's inevitable and it's on the way. But first, it hurts. That's where we're at. But birth pains also tell us something else. They they don't tell us exactly when something's going to happen. They can come and go in frequency and and intensity. They tell you that it's going to happen. But not when it's going to happen. I think that verses 4 through 26... Of chapter 24 describe the period of these birth pains. Now I'm going to say a lot of verses this morning. Follow along in your Bibles. Try to stick with me. Put on your seatbelt because here we go. I think the verses 4 through 26 of chapter 24 describe this period of these birth pains. And then verses 27 through 31 tell us about the coming of the Son of Man. So last week we only made it up through verse 14. To get all the way up to the coming of the Son of Man, we have to first complete the birth pains. We've got to get all the way through the labor before we get the baby, right? Before we get the Son of Man, we've got to have the the birth pains completed, including one of the most painful birth pains there ever would be, the destruction of the temple in the year 70 A.D. Would you pray with me, and then I'll try to show you what I see here. Let's pray. Lord, we're going to get buried in details here. Exciting, perhaps confusing, complexing details. Help us to keep our eye on the ball, who Jesus is. Help us to keep focused on application, what this means to me today. And help us to remember that soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the King. We pray in the name of our King. Amen. Now remember the context for this prophecy. In verse 1, Jesus was walking away from the temple, and His disciples tried to get Him to stay and pay attention to the temple and its glorious gold-covered buildings. Do you remember this from last week? But Jesus responded to their gomer pile, Golly, I love the temple, kind of comments, with what? Verse 2 I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus predicts the total destruction of the temple. So hearing that rocks the disciples' world. So they come to Jesus privately on the Mount of Olives. After they leave there, they go across to the Mount of Olives. So this is often called the Olivet Discourse or the a Mount of Olives teaching on the end times. And there, privately, they ask Him, verse 3, Tell us, when? When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Because in their mind, all three of these things are probably the same thing, right? I mean, if the temple is destroyed, that's the end of the world. And Jesus has come back, and that's all one thing. But we now know that they are actually separated in time. And Jesus knew that too. So what was Jesus' answer? We looked at it last week in verses four through fourteen. What did Jesus tell them was when the temple would be destroyed? Or what were the signs of his coming in the end of the age? Well, I think that most of us decided last week that Jesus does not directly answer their questions in verses four through fourteen. Jesus doesn't always tell us what we want to know. Jesus tells us what we need to know. And Jesus told them about what they need to know. They're the birth pains. He told them about these difficult things that will happen from that moment until Jesus comes back. About deceivers and false Christs and false prophets. About wars and rumors of wars. About famines and earthquakes. About persecution and hatred and apostasy and the increase in wickedness and cold, cold hearts. Birth pains. Now last week I said that there are basically three different approaches to interpreting the fulfillment of these events prophesied in Matthew 24 and 25. On the one side, there's the folks who believe, who think that nearly everything in those two chapters has already happened. It's over. That approach is called the past approach or the fancy schmancy name for it is the preterist approach. So if you want to Uh, impress somebody this afternoon you can say well the preterists believe this and that has been popular in various times in church history on the other side of the continuum are those people who think that everything that's been predicted or nearly everything that's predicted in this in Matthew 24 and 25 is still future it hasn't happened yet the fancy schmancy name for that is futurist it's a lot simpler than preterist right futurist Futurism has been very popular in the church in the last 150 years, especially here in America. I was taught it, and you've all heard it taught at some point. And then the third position is kind of somewhere in between those other two. It's not as clean as either of those two ends, and I'm not sure it even has a fancy-schmancy name. But somewhere in here is where I land on a number of these things. To me, some things in these two chapters have already happened and some things have not. I think that verses 4 through 14 are on both sides at the same time. The birth pains are things that have happened, are things that are happening right now, and are things that will happen until the return of Christ. That's what we looked at last week. Clear as mud, you with me? Okay. Now it might surprise you to learn that I think that verses 15 through 21 are actually things that have already happened. I'm preterist on the next paragraph in Matthew 24. The next paragraph, verses 15 through 21, is full of things that were future when Jesus predicted them during crucial week, but then they were fulfilled in the first century, so now they're past. Look with me at verse 15. So... When you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath for then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Now I was taught by faithful Bible-believing Christians that all of that paragraph, all of those things have not yet happened. And that is a valid and faithful interpretation of this passage. It might be yours. Many solid Bible teachers believe it, and it might be true. It was certainly all future when Jesus taught it, when he was teaching on the Mount of Olives. But I think that Jesus was answering the first part of the disciples' question here. He's telling them when the temple will be destroyed. Jesus is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D. Look with me again at verse 15. So when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What is this abomination that causes desolation, or literally, abomination of desolation? Where do those words come from? Does anybody know? Good good guess. Actually, the other direction. Daniel. That's exactly right. They come from the Old Testament prophetic book of Daniel. The abomination of desolation was predicted by the prophet Daniel. Daniel uses these exact words in chapter 9, verse 17, chapter 11, verse 31, chapter 12, verse 11. Look them up this afternoon. See what you think. And the Jews who had read the book of Daniel, let the reader of Daniel understand, the Jews had been looking for this abomination since Daniel had predicted it. And they had already experienced four tastes of it between Daniel and Jesus. Have you ever heard the name Antiochus? Epiphanes? Yeah. There was a man named Antiochus IV. Epiphanes, which means, you know, exalted, appearing. Woohoo! He thought he was something big. He was the Seleucid ruler of Israel in 167 BC. So that's before Jesus. He was after Alexander the Great, but he's before the Romans come in. So if you're a student of the book of Daniel, that's the belly and the thighs of bronze in his statue vision. And this man, Antiochus IV, was, there's no other word for it, evil. He went into the post-exilic temple and had an altar to Zeus constructed and then sacrificed a pig on it. And he made it illegal to practice Judaism. He outlawed circumcision. He outlawed the Sabbath. He outlawed the priesthood. All of those things were outlawed under Antiochus Epiphanes. May his name rot. And there was an uprising against him by a group of a family called the Maccabees. And their eventual victory that they celebrated is celebrated yearly in something called the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah, right? This happened between, in the blank pages in the middle of your Bible, between Malachi and Matthew in that that time between the Old and the New Testament. Antiochus Epiphanes was a manifestation of the abomination of desolation. I have no question about that. And yet Antiochus Epiphanes was just a foreshadowing. So in the first century, after Jesus returned to the Father, about 35 years later, in the mid-60s of the first century, the Jews were tired of the Romans and they tried to rebel against Rome. Do you know this story? And Rome sent armies led by General Titus to put down the rebellion. Okay, Massive armies. They come and they surround Jerusalem and they laid siege to Jerusalem. And then they defeated Jerusalem and they marched into town. Titus and his generals marched into the temple. They marched into the holy place. These Roman generals looking around in the holy place. Yep. And then they set fire to the temple. And then they went after the gold. Do you remember the gold we talked about last week, how everything was plated in gold? The gold had melted in the fire. And so it was everywhere, right? Right? gold everywhere it's in the cracks it's gone down in the cracks between the rocks but they were going to get that gold so what do they do the romans start uprooting and overturning all those huge stones in the burned out temple to retrieve the gold and when they were done there was nothing left of the temple not just no gold left no temple left What did Jesus say in verse 3? Not one stone left on another. What did he say at the very end of the last chapter? Your house will be left, what? Desolate. The abomination of desolation. In verse 16, Jesus told the disciples that when they saw these things unfolding before their eyes, they should run for the hills. He says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Run and don't stop. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. They had these flat roofs, right? It was like their patio. You went up on the roof to hang out. It was cooler up there, at least at certain parts of the day, right? And he's saying, if you start to see this stuff happening, don't go down into the house. You go down, you jump from house to house. Go on, just go to that next flat house and the next flat house until you get out of town, let no one go in the field go back to get his cloak. If, you'd, if you've been working a while, you take off your coat and you put it at the end of the field and you go and you work some more, you start to see all this happening. Don't go back for that cloak. Leave it behind and run. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers because you've got to get out of town and how hard it will be to travel. Pray that your flight will not place, take place in winter or on the Sabbath. There's laws about these things in the first century. Can't go any further than that. What if you have to go? Run at that time. Pray that it's not at that time of the year. Here's what's amazing they did this. This is exactly what they did in the first century. They obeyed the Lord Jesus. The Christian historian Eusebius says that when the Christians saw the Roman armies gathering around Jerusalem, the Christians got out of town. Many of them fled to a place named Pella across the Jordan River. So that when Jerusalem fell, most of the Christians had escaped. They believed Jesus' teaching and got out of Dodge. But the destruction was terrible. It was worse than 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar sacked the city and destroyed Solomon's temple and dragged Daniel into exile and Jeremiah had to write the book of Lamentations. It was worse than 167 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphany sacrificed a pig on the altar and outlawed Judaism. Jesus says here that it was the single worst thing to ever happen in Jerusalem. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Now those are big words. And I know that it's hard to see them as describing something that's already happened back in the first century. I have great sympathy for those who think they must be pointing at some great tribulation in the future. I used to think so myself. And if you think that, I highly respect your opinion. It's even possible that it might be both and. That these words were initially fulfilled in the first century and they'll be even more doubly fulfilled in the future. There are hints of that in Daniel 9 and 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 13. Read those this afternoon and think about them. But what we need to understand today is just how devastating it was in Jerusalem in the first century. Josephus, you remember him from last week? Ancient Jewish historian. He said that 97,000 Jews were enslaved at this moment. And he says that 1.1 million Jews were killed right there in the city, inside the walls. 1.1 million. Do you know how many Jews there are in, how many residents there are in Israel right now? Nine million in all of Israel. It was a much smaller population in the first century. 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered by Titus and his armies. Unspeakable horrors and atrocities were committed. It was a slaughter. And it was total destruction, not just of the temple, but of the people. And for density and percentage and concentrated desolation, if we can talk in those kinds of terms, there's never been anything like it. I venture to say, not even in the Holocaust of World War II. It was the absolute worst of the birth pains. Now, I told you there'd be good news. I'll bet you're ready for it by now. I am. Here's the good news in verse 22. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Now, I'm not sure if the those days in verse 22 are just verses 15 through 21 Or if they're all of verses 4 through 21. Both make sense in this context. I lean towards verses 4 through 21. All of the birth pains. If the birth pains had not been cut short, then everybody would die. I know that's true for women giving birth, right? If your labor never stops, you die. Here's the good news. The coming of the Son of Man will be gracious gracious i know what i just read you said oh it doesn't sound gracious to me but verse 22 shows that it is not everyone will experience this devastating judgment everyone deserves it but not everyone will experience it because god is gracious because god loves his people jesus says for the sake of the elect who's that that's us that's the people who believe and trust in Jesus, His chosen ones. Do we deserve it? No. People who don't deserve it but are His chosen people, for the sake of us, He cuts short the time. That's grace. When we read verses 15 through 21, we're supposed to tremble. We're supposed to tremble at God's justice being meted out on Israel because they had rejected Him. And we're supposed to tremble at God's grace being lavished on His people who do not deserve it. This is Thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving season. And one of the things we should be the most grateful for is that the Lord Jesus does not treat us as our sins deserve. Amen? Because we deserve what Jerusalem got. We deserve the treatment that the temple got. But for our sake, for the sake of the elect, those who believe in Jesus, those days are shortened. It will not get as bad as it could get. That's grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Verse 23. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect. If that were possible, notice what that means, that if that were possible. Can the elect be fully deceived? No. Because of God's grace, those who are truly His own children, though often confused, will not ultimately be misled. He is so gracious. Verses 23 through 26 are a lot like verses 4 and 5 that we looked at last week. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be snookered by false Christs and false teachers, even if they can do miracles, which apparently some of them can. Verse 25 See, I've told you ahead of time. Keep your eye on the ball. Who's told us ahead of time? Jesus has. He's a prophet. And this is all about him. Verse 26. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. There's our title. Wherever there's a carcass, the vultures will gather. Number two, the coming of the Son of Man will be obvious. There are lots of people who want to convince you that they have the secret of Jesus. Just come on over here over to their side and pay your $19.99. Jesus says that his return will not be hidden or missed. It will be as public as it gets. Come on over here. Hey, he's over here. Come on. Come over here. No, you can't see him unless you come in where I tell you. See, that's what he's talking about, the inside track. Jesus says, no, 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 no. His return will not be hidden or missed. It will be as public as it gets. It will be like the lightning shows up over here flashes over there as public as it gets so will be the coming of the son of man the whole world will see it heather and i like to walk on cody and holly's uh driveway also called viaduct road right people roar by there with the dust c- kicking up we like to walk out there every once in a while we see these vultures circling the turkey vultures right what do i know when i see a turkey vulture up there Something dead is down in the, on the ground, right? Yeah. There's a lot of hunters over there. Maybe they got something. Maybe it got away or whatever. It's dead and you can tell. It's obvious. There's no question about it. You can't miss it. You ever worry that you missed the return of Christ? It happened and you you, you missed it? No. Don't fret about that. You have not missed it. When Jesus comes back, it will be unmistakable. And when Jesus comes back, it will be glorious. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now believe it or not, there are some faithful, Bible-believing Christians who put that paragraph in the past category. They are preterist when it comes to 29 through 31 it's because they don't believe that it describes the return of jesus they still expect the return of jesus just like you and i do but they don't think that those verses are talking about that i think they're wrong i think that this paragraph is obviously future and it is the return of jesus the coming of the son of man I believe that the those days in verse 29 refer to the whole period of the birth pains from verse 4 through verse 26, including but not limited to the biggest birth pain of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So that when Jesus says immediately after the distress of those days, he means the distress, the tribulation of the whole period, verses 4 through 26. After all of those birth pains have finally been completed, then the Son of Man will come. And what a day that'll be there'll be heavenly signs. Earth-shattering signs. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. I don't know if that's literal. I think it probably is. This will be the most momentous event since the crucifixion and the resurrection. And the whole creation will be in upheaval over it. Verse 30 says, At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. I think that means that Jesus Himself will appear. Perhaps with a great unfurling banner for all to read King of kings and Lord of lords and then it says and all the nations will what? mourn why are they going to do that? why are they going to cry? it's because they've rejected him everyone who does not belong to Jesus will realize what they have missed you haven't missed the return of Christ yet but if you don't belong to him you will they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That's also from the book of Daniel. That's a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. Listen, I'm going to read two verses from Daniel 7. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. It was written more than 500 years before Jesus was born. Look at it this afternoon when you do your Bible study. Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's Daniel 7. And Matthew says, that's going to happen. That's going to happen to me. The Son of Man will be given this great authority from the Ancient of Days and then He's going to come down here riding on the clouds and begin His reign. Not just with a sign in the heavens, but with a trumpet call. Verse 31. And He'll send His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. I think that's what we often call the rapture. Our drawing up to be with Him forever. Just like it says in 1 Thessalonians 4. To meet Him in the air and be with Him forever. The coming of the Son of Man will be glorious. I can hardly wait, can you? Are you ready? Because it's going to be wonderful for all of the elect. For all of God's chosen people. It's going to be wonderful. But it will be terrible for those who are outside. It will be terrible for the unbelievers. It will be terrible, awful for the nations who have not trusted in Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. Verse 30 says that all the nations of the earth will mourn. Friend, I do not want that to be you. Repent now while you still can. Or you will mourn when Jesus returns. He who does not have the Son... Does not have life. Almost there. One more point of good news, and then we'll sing and go home. The coming of the Son of Man will be soon and sure. I couldn't think of another word that rhymed with glorious. Verse 32. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree, Jesus says. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. Now some people see Israel in the fig tree. And that's possible. Israel is likened to a fig tree elsewhere in the Bible. I think we saw that back in chapter 21 when Jesus cursed that fig tree. So some Bible-believing Christians think that the restoration of the nation of Israel might be a sign that the fig tree is putting out leaves again. And therefore, pay attention. That's possible. But I think it's just an illustration of how to think about all of these things. I think Jesus simply means that when you see a fig tree or any tree beginning to sprout leaves, you know that summer is coming you don't know when you know it's spring right now but you know that summer's just around the corner summer is closer if there are figs but you don't know exactly when summer will arrive it's the same thing in the fall right is winter here kind of felt like it a couple times this week right well you know winter's coming because the leaves fell right but when is winter coming don't say december 21th because that's what it says on the calendar right We'll know when winter comes when winter comes. But right now, it feels like it's coming. It's like the birth pains. It's just like the birth pains. You know the baby's coming. It's obvious the baby's coming, but you still don't know when. Jesus says, verse 33, even so, when you see all these things, you know that it's near. Right at the door. I think he means that all these things in verses 4 through 26, the things leading up to the coming of the Son of Man, when you see all of that happening, including the destruction of the temple, then you know that it's near. Or that could be translated, you know that he is near, right at the door. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. But soon on his timetable, not ours. We're going to be hearing that again and again as we follow Jesus through the rest of Matthew 24 and 25. He's going to say, soon and very soon, but not on your timetable. Soon and very soon, on my timetable. So we must wait expectantly because it's soon and patiently because we don't know when. We're going to see that again and again and again in the next several weeks expectantly, and patiently, at the same time. Expectantly, patiently, expectantly, patiently, expectantly, patiently. In verse 34, he says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. There, I think, he simply means the same thing by all these things in verse 34 as he did by all these things in verse 33. All these things of verses 4 through 26. The birth pains, the... The, the, everything that he's talking about leading up to the coming of the Son of Man in verses 27 through 31. And I think that because that's exactly what happened. Everything in verses 4 through 26 happened between 8030 and eighty seventy, one one generation. So all of the signs that the disciples asked for and that Jesus was willing to give at that time have occurred. Those prophecies of Jesus have come to pass. And that means that all the prophecies he has made that are still to come will come to pass. And nothing can stop them. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now keep your eye on the ball. Notice whose words have this ultimate authority. Is it God's? It's Jesus's. The Son of God. God the Son. He says, my words will never pass away. Jesus' words are inviolable, indestructible, indefatigable, unstoppable. The coming of the Son of Man is soon and it is sure. It is certain and it is guaranteed. Nothing can stop Him. Nothing will stop Him from coming in all of His glory and power to take us to be with Him forever. Amen? Soon and sure. Do you believe that? If you do, then it should change how you live your life. If you know that Jesus' return is more certain than the sun will come up tomorrow, how should that affect how you live tomorrow when the sun comes up? You and I should be living unshakable lives. I don't know about you, but I'm easily shakable. It doesn't take much to get me worried and insecure and anxious. Don't say amen. And everybody in my life suffers for it when I'm anxious. So Jesus is speaking to me this morning. He's saying, Matthew, did I predict the desolation of Jerusalem and the temple? Yes, Lord. Did it happen? Yes, Lord. Not one stone? Not one stone. What are you worried about, Matthew? Are you worried that the Son of Man will not come on the clouds and not defeat all of His enemies with power and glory and not send His angels with a loud trumpet call and gather you, rescue you from wherever you are, even Pennsylvania? What are you worried about, Matthew? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away.